we're in like our, our, our third week of this study and, and um, we're still in the same chapter where we started, uh, barring a little preamble stuff. So what I'm gonna do, uh, because I needed to go back and work on some of this to get myself up to speed, I'm gonna do a little bit of a, a our story so far in the event you've not been able to be here the last couple weeks, just to give you a little, a little context on the situation into which Elijah suddenly appears, not supernaturally, but he pops up in the biblical narrative kind of without much precedent. Uh, what's going on in the last paragraph of, of 1 Kings 16, we have the rise of King Ahab. Um, after the post-Solomon civil war, you know, the, the nation of Israel clamored for a king before Saul, and they had three of them before there was a civil war that tore them into two separate nations. The, the kings of the uh, united monarchy, it was only Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon, there's a civil war, and the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah function as two separate nations. The kings of Judah are a mixed bag. Some of them are godly, some of them are not in the south. In the north, none of them. They, 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 they go from bad to worse to worst. And when you get to King Ahab, he's the worst. And that's not my speculation, that's the label. Uh, he's, he's the worst of the worst. Verse uh, uh, 30 of chapter 16 says, uh, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And uh, verse 33 says, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He, he, uh, he married a, uh, a uh, unbeliever who was ethnically associated with the Phoenicians, Sidon. Um, the problem was not her ethnicity, the problem was her lack of faith, right? Don't ever Six forty-two. I can chase a rabbit. Don't ever believe that the Word of God has anything to say negatively about marriages between differing ethnicities. We're not that many generations removed from Noah, and the fact that we have incidentally differing melanin levels and other characteristics has nothing to do with the fact that we're there. The, the the race of Adam is us, and we're all in it. The issue that God has a consistent and significant problem with is when those who are his people marry those who are not his people. If you are um, unmarried this evening, do not, don't go on the first date with somebody who's not on fire for Jesus. Why in the world would you risk ending up with a, with a heart alignment with someone who's not aligned with you on that which is life's most defining characteristic, your love for Jesus. Just don't do it. Well, Ahab plowed right through that and, and married Jezebel. His idolatry, he constructed um, Baal altars and Ashtaroth altars and willy-nilly, full-out pursuit of idolatry. And under his under his administration, the city of Jericho was rebuilt. 
Joshua 6.46, Joshua forbade, pronounced that God had forbade the rebuilding of Jericho. God had said that whoever rebuilds Jericho will pay for that with the life of two of his sons. And so there's a guy named Hiel of Bethel who did rebuild Jericho and both of his sons were lost. Uh, as the, here in verse, oh man, tiny print. Uh, verse 34, the last verse of chapter 16, uh, he, he rebuilt it at the cost of his youngest son and his oldest son. So Ahab, we are meant to come to chapter 17 realizing that Ahab is the bottom of the barrel as kings go. Actively and despicably evil. Verse 17, still in our recap, Elijah pops up on the scene. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, we don't know any backstory on him. Um, we are going to learn quite a lot about him as the narrative unfolds, but he shows up, and he shows up in the face of Ahab. He said to Ahab, and we don't have even much of a context for this scene where it occurred, but he got face to face with Ahab and said, um, God's going to turn the water off. And he's going to turn the water off until I say, obviously at his prompting, that the water's coming back. The whole land of, of Israel, in the broadest sense, is uh, naturally pretty arid. If you're gonna have, if you're gonna have, there's a lot of agriculture there now, but it's, it's driven by irrigation. Sea of Galilee is an incredibly valuable resource. The reason the Golan Heights, a term that if you pay attention to Middle East news, at least all my life, the Golan Heights is one of the strategic um, few square miles of strategic land in the whole world. And it's because on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, it's a dominant position. If you control the Golan Heights, especially with modern artillery, you control the Golan Heights, you control water in the Middle East because the Sea of Galilee is the largest natural freshwater lake in that whole region. Um, rain matters. And when a, when a prophet says to a sinful king, we're gonna turn the rain off as an attention-getting measure. And it happened. He makes, his, he makes his pronouncement, and then the word of the Lord came to him and sent him to the brook Kareth. That was what y'all talked about last week. And God begins to train him. God begins to train him in a, in a, in a, in a retreat setting, in an isolated setting. He has the ravens bring him food every day. There's something, it's a thread woven through Scripture, that the Lord wants his people to be reminded of their dependence upon him. If the birds don't bring the food, he doesn't eat. He's got no permission to go foraging. The brook is there, and he's there until the brook dries up. It's interesting that he, he's used of God to announce a water crisis, and then he's placed in a place where the water is not in any shortage at all until it's time to leave, and then the brook dries up. But the food, the daily provision of the food. Has God, has God used the daily provision of food in a very explicit way 
prior to this for his people. Yeah, what does it remind you? It reminds me of manna. Reminds me of manna. Um, it's, it's there every day. You can't hoard it. If it doesn't come, you don't eat. But it always comes. Um, there, are, there are so many lessons about God's provision for his people in that. Um, we live in a, in, a, in a fairly sophisticated economic environment, you and I. And we have access to astounding resources and capabilities. <laughs> Three days into my, into my journey, I dropped my, uh, I dropped my phone on a marble floor in a hotel room in Athens. 4-1 phone zero is the score as it stands right now. And so the last, the top 20% of my screen, everything above that horizontal line, my new phone is coming tomorrow. Everything above that horizontal line works. Nothing below it does. I can actually enter my security pin on my phone now without seeing it. A life skill I never knew I needed. <laughs> so I can at least unlock it and look at notifications and be frustrated at the emails and text messages I can't answer. Um, With all of our astounding resources and all of our astounding capabilities, it's very, very easy for us to forget that the next breath we take, we take because he provides it. The air, the lung capacity, the mechanisms, everything that goes into you taking a breath either happens or doesn't happen in the next eight or 10 seconds at his will and direction. Ditto everything. Ditto everything. And, and Elijah sitting down in that little creek bottom. And here come the birds again with breakfast. And here come the birds again with dinner. Is learning something very, very profound. But there's a, there's a quiet and there's a solitude to the, to the lessons of, of the brook Kareth. At Zarephath, God's going to take it up a notch because now he's going to begin to bring other people along in what he's learned. So, we come to the drying up of the brook in chapter 7, and we begin in, I mean, verse 7, we begin in verse 8. Tonight we'll be looking at verses 8 through 16, the widow at Zarephath. The next step in Elijah's training because his, his ministry's not gone big public yet. He, he, in Act 1, he pops the king with the, uh, with the announcement that the water's going to dry up. Goes into solitary training at Kareth and now begins to crescendo a little bit, but only still a small number of people even know who he is. The word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath. And by the way, the, name, the word Zarephath means crucible. You know what a crucible is? It's a place where you melt down the metal to purify it, to skim off the dross and have the, it's it, it, refinery. Go to the refinery, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. 
So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Because this is it. We're about, to, we're about to cook the last of what I've got. And so, you know, one more half a biscuit each and then we will begin the process of starving to death. Because remember, the whole region is in an agricultural crisis caused by this same drought. It's not that she's just poor and can't afford the stuff. There's just stuff's not to be had. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Ma'am, you're going to be okay. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah curtain comes up on this act with God making, making two demands of Elijah. Elijah, it's time for you to begin to advance. And I need you to learn two lessons. One is what I have called the lesson of mobility. And the other, the lesson of humility. I need you to obey me in two ways. First, mobility. Get up and go. Um, Cherith, where he's been, is on the east side of the Jordan River. Zarephath, where he's heading, is on the coast. Um, so you're going to have a 100-mile journey. And the last time you did anything public, you got up in the king's face. He's not happy. And I don't know what the, what the hundreds of years B.C. version of an all-points bulletin is, but if anybody who loves the king, or at least is loyal to the king, spots you, um, you're going to have a problem. So you're going to have to make an uncomfortable drive, let alone a 100-mile hike. Ron, we were talking about hiking earlier. 100 miles of, of, of mixed-terrain hiking in an area where you've ticked off the king. You enjoy that. And second, he's going to end up in an undesirable place. We just learned in a couple of paragraphs ago that Sidon is the territory that gave rise to Jezebel. He's going right to the heart of Jezebel's home court. 